gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Might have remarkable, Big Daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from season two of White Lotus with the help of special guest, head of brand content at Atlassian. Natalie Mendez. Natalie, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat about all things Atlassian, chat about White Lotus Season 2, and some B2B content marketing lessons. So let's get into it. Why the heck did you select Season 2 of The White Lotus? Well, I mean, I'll start by saying I never thought I'd get an opportunity to talk about B2B marketing what I do at Atlassian, and some of my favorite TV shows. So this is fun. Thank you for having me. I love White Lotus. I'm impressed that you're even here. Why are you impressed? It's a long trip from Los Angeles, and you're quite old, no? I think it's a case study in excellent brand marketing and storytelling. I I chose season two because it's the most recent season, um, and I think they improved upon some, some issues from season one, but it's just such a good story. It like captures your attention immediately and you can't stop watching it. So a lot of lessons to learn for what we do in marketing. And taking a step back, tell us a little bit about your role at Atlassian. So I'm now the head of brand content at Atlassian, but I didn't start in this role. I started as a editor on the company blog. And I have since grown what I've done to include a team of four and lots of different channels that we cover, including blog, the website, and our social media. A couple of years ago, we started kind of our what we call our brand journalism studio. And that resulted in a publication by Atlassian that's called Work Life and two podcasts that we run. One is just in its fourth season already and our kind of corporate messaging that we put out on our social media channels. I have to brag on you a little bit as well because you have won many awards at Atlassian for the content that y'all make. You've built, I think, one of the best content portfolios with shows, with written content, with like audio, video, some incredible different multimedia projects that you've done. And 
and very core to what Elassian does. And it's it's truly a testament to what y'all have done. And we're going to get a bunch more into that later with your strategy and how you think about content. Yeah, thank you. And we're just now riding the high of having one, one of our podcasts won at Tribeca in New York City last June. So we feel like if we got attention from Tribeca, we, we're doing the right thing. Yeah, we never do it for awards, but it sure does. It sure does it sure help. Does help. Uh, yeah. yeah. Meredith, tell us about season two of White Lotus. So to back up a little bit just about White Lotus in general, it's about the guests and employees at this fictional resort chain of the same name, White Lotus. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. So while initially everything is so beautiful and picture perfect on the show, on the surface, there's sort of this darkness underneath that reveals itself more and more as time goes on. So each season is set in a different place. The first season was in Hawaii. Aloha. Welcome to the White Lotus. The second season is set in Sicily. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. And stars uh, Jennifer Coolidge as Tanya McCoyd Hunt, F. Murray Abraham as Bert DeGrasso, Michael Imperioli as Dominic DeGrasso, Adam DeMarco as Albie DeGrasso, Aubrey Plaza as Harper Spiller, and her husband, Ethan Spiller, is played by Will Sharp. But there are tons, tons more characters. And it starts off with the death of a guest at the White Lotus Resort. And this season really revolves around the sex lives of the characters. There's cheating, there's sex addiction, there's stuff like that. I'm just saying, you're 80 years old. Oh, I'm still a man. And I get older and older, but the women I desire remain young. Natural, right? You can relate to that. And this is different from the first season, which focused more on, like, money and privilege. So there are different things that sort of, like, stir up drama. The series was created by Mike Waite for HBO and premiered in 2021. So there are now two seasons and a third in production. And reportedly, the the next season will be in Thailand, is what I've heard. Although I'm not, that's not uh, set in stone. It's won 10 Primetime Emmy Awards and two Golden Globes. So it's been super successful, super popular. And so let's get into the making of this. How, how was this made? So Mike White, like I said, is the creator of it. And his career really started in the 1990s. And he has a really interesting career, actually. And, and a lot of that influenced... White Lotus. So his first work was, well, the beginning of his career was started on sort of Freaks and Geeks and Dawson's Creek. So like, again, super popular shows. But this is where it gets interesting is that he also competed in The Amazing Race and Survivor. And so that ends up inspiring White Lotus. And so despite like his, all of his successes before that, he was actually surprised that White Lotus really took off. And he said, I just feel like I'm a surfer who's been in the ocean for like 25 years and suddenly caught a wave. And so it's really been this sort of sensation and he was, you know, surprised by it. And so he said he was inspired by his work on Survivor and TV shows from his childhood, which include like Fantasy Island, Love Boat, and even Laverne and Shirley was an inspiration for it because they inspired the sex workers that are in the show. So I was surprised by that. But he's sort of taken, you know, his previous career and shows that he was a fan of and worked them into White Lotus. Fun fact, did you know that Laverne and Shirley is an actual term that's used in Hollywood to describe how you would refer to actors? So let's say, Meredith, you and I were starring in a film together. 
and you have first position, we would always be referred to as starring Meredith and Ian. So you, it would never be Ian and Meredith. Oh, it would never be starring Meredith, starring you know Ian. So anyways, fun fact. I didn't know that. Very cool. Yeah. Natalie, why is this show remarkable to you? Great question. Well, remarkable to me because once I started watching it, I just got immediately hooked on the story and the intrigue. So it's a show where you know the ending, but then the whole show is about figuring out how it happened. What the fuck is it? And so I love that storytelling device because it hooks you immediately and then you become sort of part of the show. Outside of each of the seasons, I just think the White Lotus franchise is so strong. Like, even though they're going into multiple seasons, they introduce a whole new cast of characters with each season and they can change locations, they can change countries, but you still know it's a White Lotus show and you know what to expect. So there's a lot of like strong branding, I would say. And then the last part of it is just Tanya's character. How was your caprese? Oh. I was told that the cheese beer was made by a blind nun in a basement. And I think, so she's the only character that was present in season one and is now, was like the star of season two. And she was so good that that character just took off, like in a brand of its own, really. You know, we, you see her like memes on social media and people just like people fawning over her as a character and rooting for her, even though she you know, has a ton of flaws and is probably not someone you would ever really want to be friends with. She just became a sensation. It is so interesting to me that they started a show with this idea of the hotel. They get this absolutely in season one, this like incredibly engaging lead character who is like just so, so, so good. And then they wipe the slate for season two and only bring back one character who I think she was like a key character in the first season, but by no means was she, you know, like the star. And they can build on it in a way that opens up the intrigue, open up, opens up this like, why does this stuff start happening at White Lotuses to, to open up like the, the fingerprints and the storytelling and all of that. Guess who I am? Uh, watch, watch. Peppa Pig. I'm Monica Vitti. Monica Vitti is dead. But yes. And it makes you really want to watch next season, even though the characters are gone. And it's the same, it's the same feeling that I had when I watched the, the flight attendant. Did you ever watch that? Yeah. So anywho, the the story starts off with you know, this guy being killed. And then he's this great character in the entire series because he's like, you know, he's basically like, she's having projections of this guy and having like conversations with him. And I'm like, it's always such a, it's always such a bummer when you kill someone that's such a good character and then you can't bring them back for multiple seasons. And that's really how I felt in, at the end of season one. It's like, how are they going to duplicate this? How are they going to have a season two that's even more compelling? And 
I would almost say season two is better in some ways. And like you said, Natalie, they kind of fixed some flaws. What did you kind of feel like were the were the cracks that they kind of were able to pave over? Well, I think in in regards to the topic, the theme of like privilege and the impact of colonialism on a place like Hawaii, that was really strong in the first season. And I actually am, I really enjoyed like that they were able to bring some of that social commentary into the show. But it was so, it was very powerful and very strong in ways that I think for me as as a watcher, I felt saddened by it. For sure. It was a bummer, <laughs> and, no doubt. Yeah. And, you know, those are just some things that aren't going to be fixed by me watching the show or the show being made. So I think in the second season, in terms of turning the focus on, you know, the proclivities and like issues of the guests. Do you even want me? I love you. (sighs) So depressing. You know, it made it much more, more watchable in terms of knowing that really these guests are bringing their own demise upon themselves versus in season one where it felt like there was this sort of almost like a bit of a like class struggle that was, you know, ended, I think it ended pretty poorly. So I think they really honed in on how they could develop the show and the characters in a way that, I don't know, at least to me, it felt less heavy than in season one. No doubt. I mean, you kill a main character and you have a very unsatisfying ending to season one. Like, it was extremely unsatisfying. Like, there was tons of people that were hurt in ways that, like, you as the as the viewer, like, you were bummed at the end of it. I remember finishing it and I'm like, this is like, a this is a huge bummer. Someone broke in and took a dump. Yes, send someone. This is so fucked up. Like, I kind of want to like talk to someone about this. Like, I I didn't really even love the first season. I was just transfixed and the acting is like off the charts good. And so I think that it's just, it's a, it's a good note to say that if you want to tell that type of story, like, go ahead, that's awesome. But if you want to make it slightly more upbeat, and I think they tried to do that with like Steve Zahn's character in the first season. And like they tried to be a little bit upbeat, but there was this undercurrent of that's that's very that's very serious, where you can contrast that to like a true detective, which like you know you're getting real dark, right? You know from the first minute, you know that this is just purely a very dark sort of a an affair. And so I think that in season two, they fix some of that stuff. It's just a lighter thing and it's just a little bit more in, in, enjoyable. And for B2B content, I think the big takeaway is sort of, and we'll get into some of that stuff, is like, you just have to be very purposeful with the type of outcome in the season, how you want it to finish, and how you want people to feel at the end of it. And the creators, I think, definitely achieved that in season one, but the audience might have been just like slightly miffed at how they how they felt in the mixed emotions. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, even in season two, it's a show where like, there is no hero nobody really wins and and i think that's sort of 
What I like about it too is it's more of a character study in these people and what's driving them to do things and what's holding them back and what are their secrets than, you know, trying to identify a hero of the story and and follow their progression, you know. And I think the setup that they have of it being this ensemble cast, you know, like it's like it's it's a classic kind of who done it where anybody could be like the perpetrator. And so you really spend time investing in the characters and figuring out why they're doing what they're doing. And the commentary is quite great. I mean, one of my um, favorite kind of mini stories from season two is the family that comes to Sicily to find their Italian relatives. You guys are here to learn about your Sicilian roots. Sounds like a fun boys trip. Wasn't supposed to be a boys trip. And I think as Americans, we all kind of, (laughs) we have this proclivity to figure out like where we're really from and trace our genealogy and things like that, which are not a thing in lots of parts of the rest of the world, including in in Italy. And um, so you see this family trying to reconnect with their Sicilian roots and you follow them to the end of coming to this country house on the side of a of the beach and they can't speak the language the the women there are just angry at them for showing up at their house and and expecting they would be welcomed in with open arms and it's it's really funny because i think we all have that experience of wanting to make a connection that isn't there and romanticizing something too much and the fact that the show can sh- make that real in in all of the different characters' lives. So fascinating to me. So, so fun to watch. I think there's just also something so fun about watching people on vacation and watching them do dumb, selfish stuff on vacation. They'll be coming and going. You see, they're locals. They're my local friends. Ah. Uh. They come and go. I see. And like who you are on vacation and how you treat people and all of that is just like such a fun setting. And like whether it's like, you know, go back to movies like the movie Vacation. It's so easy to identify with all the crappy people that you've met when you've been on vacation and watched and overheard conversations and the fights and the anger and the jostling and the like, you know, sexual exploits and all this stuff. And it's just like, it's just really fun to watch all that. But when you couch it in a whodunit, you have a reason for being there, right? Like if there wasn't, I just go, like if there wasn't a murder in each of these stories, like obviously I don't know what would drive the plot forward, but it's obvious, but like there is a thing. They put a body at the beginning of episode season one And you know from the very beginning of White Lotus that this is a show about somebody dying. You don't know who it is. Which hotel were you at? White Lotus. White Lotus? Our guide told us someone was killed there. Bodies on our plane. On our plane? To Honolulu? Yeah, they're about to load the body on our plane. And that's how they start the entire series out. And you know what to expect is that like there's going to be a whodunit. And like I think that that's a way that 
you get away with 10 hours of content where you can get into the intricacies of how weird and 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 bad these characters are and you, and you want to learn it all cuz you're trying to figure out the the solution. Yeah. Well, so as somebody who was in the Reddit community for White Lotus season 2, it was also really fun because I think you mentioned at the beginning of this call feeling connected to others it spurred so much conversation online after every episode. Mm -hmm. People would go into Reddit and be like, okay, here's my leaderboard of who I think did it. Or, or actually it was who I think, my leaderboard of who I think dies at yep. the end. And people start voting and putting in their comments and saying, no, it has to be this person because like what they revealed about them and their secret past was so bad. There's no way they're going to let them survive this show. Must be nice to have a rich uncle. Yeah, well, uh, he's not rich. Not really, anyway. He spent most of it, hasn't he? It's his family's fucking house. Your family, too, though, right? Because he's your uncle, right? And it's interesting when you look at following the conversation we're having on season one about class, there were a lot of people... Um, in the show who thought, oh, it'll probably be one of the sex workers, you know, because like historically it doesn't turn out well for, right. you know, that those people. And I think it was really great that that was not the case. That was not the outcome. And I won't give it all away, but that was another way in which like the show evolved, I would say, to kind of even the playing field among all of the characters. It's a fun way to tell a mystery to start with, there's a body, but you don't know who it is. Like, it's just a, it's a little bit different than what you see super often, which is, hey, this person's dead, Larry's dead, and we got to figure out who killed him. It's just a very different way of telling a story. And I think that, like, it just works really well because we're used to figuring out who did it, but who is the victim is, is, almost more fun. And especially in this setting, it's like, it's really, really fun. And it's just like that slight tweak, which sort of makes, makes all the difference in the world. Natalie. I was thinking about Natalie, how you mentioned that season to season, it's set in a different place. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. Even the motives or the story revolves around different things, but it's still White Lotus, so it still is that brand. And you mentioned the branding's really strong. And I'm wondering how you think about building a brand like that that's super strong. Like, how do you do that? And how do you put out new content at Atlassian and still have it be Atlassian without necessarily having it be like in your face? Yeah, I love that question. So I think... There's a couple ways to do this with a brand. Uh, one is, you know, the voice and tone. Like, how do you show up? What do you sound like? And speaking of sound, White Lotus has a really great opening musical score. That they started with in season one, they continued with in season two with some tweaks, I think. And so that kind of sets the tone for the story. Whoa. 
similarly, like every major brand I would expect has like a voice and tone guideline. So when we write copy, what do we sound like? How do we convey our mission and our message through copy? Same with your branding. Speaking of the the brand of White Lotus, you know, it's always set in like a luxury boutique hotel in some exotic location. It was Hawaii, it was Sicily, but it could go anywhere. And so when you think about your brand, what are those elements that you could take anywhere, right? Maybe you're starting on your website or your blog, but you're expanding to what if you have live and in, in-person in events? How does your brand show up there, right? How does your brand show up in sales conversations that you're having? So yeah, I also think the focus that White Lotus put on the format being an ensemble show where everyone's kind of, everyone is suspicious, everyone has their secrets. So, you know, when I think about content, it's what are the content formats that work for you that you can do on a yearly, a quarterly basis? Research is a great thing that comes to mind and something we've done at Atlassian with our annual state of teams report where Every year we produce a report on the state of teamwork and how people are working together. And the more we do that, the more people will see us as a teamwork enabling software company, which is exactly what we want to be. And so we can see that franchise, you know, continue over the years and really be consistent with it. Just like you would see in a TV show making multiple seasons, you know, when they get each season renewed, it's because they've been super successful in their past season and people want to see more. And I can see White Lotus producing tens of seasons because it's just, it's just so creatable. Totally. I love that. Let's get into our sort of B2B takeaways here. I'll start with one that, that just is, we've kind of been talking about, but is they created a brand, they created a series and they created a tether from one to the other by having one character that went to both. And like, that's the difference between creating a one-off and like a world. And like, it sounds nerdy, but it's so true that now like the White Lotus cinematic universe exists. I don't know how many hotels they have. I don't know, you know, how many characters from season two are going to come back. I don't know if season one characters are going to come back. Like we have no idea. And that is really exciting for me. I should have started that spa for poor women with a girl from Maui. And so for B2B marketers, when you create a series that has multiple different pieces that are, that are very similar and then things that are also different, it allows you to have so much more creativity. And like the exact thing that you were just talking about, the like state of teams report where they know that it's this franchise, for lack of a better term, that comes every year and that there's going to be things that are part of it every year. And like a, a good B2B example of this is like Mary Meeker's report that she comes out every year with. Like, you know, Mary's going to come out with it. You know, it's going to be a slide deck. You know, it's going to be this thing. You don't know what's going to be in the content, but you can look forward to it every year. And it creates a little event that you know on your calendar. So you set it. And like that stuff is so valuable. And then you can bring in other people. So if like next year, if Mary brought on, I don't know who, but Mark Andreessen to come on and talk about it, you'd be like, 
oh, that's cool that we did that this year. And like, again, this is, it's, it's sort of obvious, but creating a franchise like that is way more beneficial than creating one-off. Because if, if White Lotus this season dropped, everyone would have thought it was super cool, but it's, it's quite literally like 10 times cooler that there's this other season and this world that you're like, I feel like this is way more real and lived in. And like, I want to explore it more. Like I want to see the other locations and these other people that work there so much more that you know that there's just more of it out there. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier and efficient in a lot of ways to build on something that's working than to try to change up your story every single year and try new marketing formats just for the sake of it, right? Like when you can build on something over time, that's where you see the benefit and the growth. Even from a, you know, organic SEO standpoint, we still see lots of great traffic coming to our old content. You know, it's not all about the new stuff every time. Any other uh, B2B uh, takeaways? I do think there is something in the nature of the value of an ensemble cast. Hi, I'm Lucia. I'll be. Hi. <laughs> um, so where, where are you from? Um, I'm from Catania. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think, I think we're going there at some point. And so if you think about that in B2B, it's like you're multi-channel marketing strategy or your, you know, mix of assets that you're producing every year. But then thinking about your darling, your favorite, which which is Tanya's character in season two, that everybody just loved her, embraced her, turned her into memes, made whole worlds based on her. I'm sure there's like a ton of fan fiction for her character out there. Please, these gays. They're trying to murder me. And so there is something to finding your darlings and really in, investing in them and, and doubling down and letting them have their own life, you know, and, and breathe on their own, right? So whether that's, I don't know, say something because something starts in your digital world and becomes an event in the real world or, you know, your customers rally around one of your products in a real way or a new feature, letting that take off and knowing that that is going to be good for your brand and, and good for your customers while still having, you know, the cat, the, the regular cast of characters in the mix. Yeah. If you're like, you do a bunch of small events and it's like the Austin event just is always awesome like we got the perfect venue we got the perfect stuff it's like if that's the case and the the whatever the san francisco one stinks like put more resources into the austin one <laughs> right you're like oh this is great i also think that you know we can't always do actors in b2b unless you're doing something fictional but i think it's so important that your talent is really good and Hosts, much like characters, are like audiences are very finicky about their hosts. They get very attached to the host of their shows. And so you have to know that some people love Aubrey Plaza, you know, some people love 
F. Murray Abraham. And people connect with characters different ways and people connect with your hosts in different ways. And just because one host is like very awesome doesn't mean that they're the right fit for everyone. And so if you have those, if you have a differentiated approach to the talent that you're putting in, in your content, then it'll, it'll stand out more. Some people like a very literal, very data-driven, practical type host who's been there, done that, sat in the seat multiple times. Other people want someone who's much more like academic or cerebral in some way or a better storyteller. And I think that that's just like one of those things in B2B content. You should put those people at the forefront and accentuate those personalities and put them out there. And especially when ones are are really popular, like put more resources behind those. Anything else B2B take takeaway wise, or should we get into Atlassian stuff? Yeah, I love that note about, you know, your, your subject matter experts, your thought leaders. Um, we have seen a lot of that at Atlassian in our kind of cast of, we've got teamwork experts, we've got, you know, product experts, we've got our co-CEOs, which are spokespeople for the company. But one of our work evangelists, his name is Don Price, he is just really passionate about teamwork. And so we kind of unleashed him with some resources and messaging, but he has gone on to not only talk about teamwork for our customers, but actually consult with our customers on what they're doing internally with their teams and offer like basically free consulting services from Atlassian into these companies. And that has birthed this whole program of what we call work doctors, which are teamwork experts that partner with our enterprise customers to help them work better together. They go speak at events. They wear lab coats as part of their brand. And it's just really fun to see how when somebody takes off or when a message takes off, really, because I think it's a lot about the message too, you can accelerate it. You can create entire new programs out of things that just started, you know, among your cast of, in your cast of characters. And that stuff works so well. Like people follow people is like one of the biggest takeaways that we've seen at Caspian Studios with the different hosts that we have across, you know, 65 plus shows. People follow people like it really matters. Engagement is way higher than with brand posts. The comments are way more genuine and authentic. They like to see their peers. They like to learn from their peers. Like it's a winning strategy. It like absolutely is. I love the lab goats. That's super funny. I didn't know you did that. So tell me a little bit about your content strategy and how you think about it at Atlassian. Sure. So Atlassian has been around for 20 years, um, which is wild because we are uh, so innovative and it feels like a startup in a lot of ways. But yeah, we are a 20-year-old company and we were started by our co-founders and our co-CEOs they started with one pro- product, Jira, and we were really focused on basically software developers and IT people with that product. But over time, over the last 20 years, we've launched new products like Confluence and Bitbucket and Jira Service Desk. 
and we've added products to our portfolio like Trello. And so we've really gone from sort of niche product for specifically software developers into a whole suite of basically workplace productivity products that can be used by teams across the board. And so as part of that evolution, we've really had to shift our messaging. You know, we've, we were started really strong with, with engineers, but we needed to be talking to marketers and HR people and legal. And so a couple of years ago, we really started to crystallize what was the Atlassian company mission, and it's to unleash the potential of all teams. That's actually always been our mission from beginning, but we really started to own it and speak about it, I would say, when I joined the company seven years ago. And so a lot of my content strategy work has been around that mission. How do we take that super lofty mission of unleashing the potential of all teams and turn it into content strategies and pieces of content that people will, will resonate with and will help increase their not only awareness of the brand, but their belief in the brand's ability to help them, you know, unleash their potential and, and solve their teamwork problems. So our company publication work life is really in service of that mission. So we create a ton of advice for people on how to work together better with their teams, both how to invest in their careers individually, but also how to lead teams better, how to collaborate across teams and functions better. And all of that is to help bolster this idea that Atlassian is there to help you not only do like specific work in whatever product you're using, but to work together better and, and you know, consequently be this platform for, for workplace productivity software. So, you know, we started with just written content on the blog because that's what was doable for us at the time. But then we got the opportunity to move into podcasting. So we have two podcasts, which are called Teamistry and WorkCheck, which are basically different takes and different angles on teamwork. Um, Teamistry has sort of this, it's very storytelling oriented. It's about exposing the sort of hidden triumphs behind the world's greatest accomplishments. So whether that's photographing a black hole or the invention of the light bulb, we kind of go behind the scenes with teams to see what really what really happened to contribute to this great innovation. And then Work Check is a podcast that it's a debate style show where we um, take a common like teamwork practice, like maybe retrospectives or something like that, and debate the pros and cons of each. And that's been a really fun show because um, like you were saying earlier, it it has people as like the characters. And so a lot of people will resonate with a debater and pick a side and want them to win. But it's really just about exploring different topics. And yeah, I think our, you know, our, our state of our research that we started doing around teamwork is also helping us deliver on our mission and push that forward. So yeah, truly it's figuring out what does, what matters to the company? What do we want to be known for? And then how can any type of content that we create ultimately ladder up to that big mission? And this is not just, you know, a philosophical thought exercise for us. Like we've seen immense growth of traffic to our work life publication over time. 
long-term followership, people who subscribe and want to hear more from us and we can in turn learn from them and what their challenges are. Um, you know, we we just wrapped our fourth season of Teamistry. And so to me, like the momentum of that show has shown us that this is something people are interested in and want to learn more about. And so if we can attach our brand to some of these great teamwork stories and advice, then it's mission accomplished. I love that. It's so cool talking to someone like you who's been there for seven years. And, you know, content is such an avalanche, you know, it's, it, it is, it takes, feels like years sometimes to build up what you think is like a good spot. And then once you get to that point, you start adding these other elements and then all of a sudden you have four season, seasons of a show. All of a sudden you're making documentaries. All of a sudden you're doing this stuff. And it seems like, you know, you can, you, once you get that ball rolling down the hill, it's like now all of a sudden you're, you have this, you know, just huge, immense amount of really high quality stuff that's reaching all those different pockets of your community. It, did it feel like that for you? How did it feel like in the early days? Yeah, I, I love the way you put that because I think a lot of times, you know, we want to start something new. We think, oh, we have to get like the strategy fully baked, like a six pager that everyone agrees on all the way up to the CEO. And, you know, if I've learned anything in my time at Atlassian, it's that uh, sometimes you just got to try it and you got to be agile with it and you have to test. But the more you commit to something and experiment with it, be creative, as you were saying, the opportunities can tend to flow from there. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of benefit, I believe, even in B2B to, hey, let's let's try to get on TikTok and see like what that brings for us, right? Yeah. Just there's there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I think if we stay too confined to like our B2B playground, I think we miss out on a lot because at the end of the day, our even if we're like B2B and our target buyers are like IT decision makers or something, there's still people, you know, and they, they're on social media, they're listening to podcasts, like they're sometimes Googling big hairy questions that they need answers to. So the more we can keep looking out for opportunities on the horizon, the more great stuff can come from that. I think the content at its core is about belief that you are making something that your community deserves to see and will like uplift them. And like, I just think it's so easy for you to have sat there after Team History season one and said, hey, there's no ROI in this. Or like to look at the, uh, you know, making an impossible airplane, the untold story of the Concorde and say like, well, I don't know if this, does this really need to exist? And like, nothing in business needs to happen. Like that's, that's part of the thing, right? Is like, you can always spend more money on Google AdWords and, and Facebook ads. Like you always can, but like you said, you have to tell stories of teams winning because that's core to your company's mission. And you have to believe that those stories will unlock people's minds to see what is possible. And it's just way easier to like get into that experimentation mode and just quit and like not have the conviction to say like, well, what could this actually do? Like if you're on TikTok, it's like, well, what could our TikTok do five years from now? 
if we post every day for five years, is it possible that we have the best TikTok in all of business content? Like, that's the sort of thinking that I think more people need to have is like, what's the five-year, you know, strategy look like? Not that you need to build it all out to your point, but to have the conviction, it's like, if we have 200 more customer stories over the next five years, could you imagine what those will do? And like, yeah, the, right now you got to tell five, but you know, that's the sort of stuff of like how content compounds and becomes an avalanche. And I think there's a little bit too much of trying to win next quarter and the, you know, and that stuff is like, but directionally we know as a company, we know we want to tell stories of teams. So like, let's commit to that. And it, it it's not an easy thing we're talking about. We're not, you know, we're not trying to sell like a point product solution that is very clear and, and, you know, sort of niche, I would say. Right. It's hard because we're trying to change hearts and minds. We're trying to change the way people work together and accelerate the way that they, they work together. And so, yeah, it would be really easy to be like, go buy Jira, like, and put a lot of money into digital ads, as you're saying. But it's another thing to say, hey, buy Jira because it's a connected tool to a suite of products that when you use it all together, like you're going to be able to work together more effectively, communicate better. And, and that is a long game, right? And, and that takes story and it takes time. And so, yeah, I mean, your point about ROI is great. Like at another company, somebody may look at that, you know, some of our content and say, yeah, where's, you know, I'm not seeing like the sales qualified leads coming from here. But when you're building a brand and you've got a big story to tell, you know, you have to be committed to telling that story. And it has to be stories. And I think that that's like part of what's so cool of the way that you've done this is like, you could look under the hood at, at Atlassian's content machine and see all of the stories in there, that it's not just features and benefits stuff, which is like, fine, that's good too. That's great too. But that there's actually stories there. And like, those are the things that jump out. And like, when I look at, you know, your content and like, the untold story of the Concord, like that to me, I remember that. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that was a story that Atlassian told. Like, that's cool. Like that is memorable. Whereas like, I could not tell you a single post about Jira that I've ever read. You know what I mean? But like, but I know through years and years of, of being around. And that's the other thing too, is like, you've been around for 20 years. So like, you do have to approach things differently than a company that's like a challenger brand that, you know, like you said, has a one point, yeah, hey, we're selling accounting software to lawyers. Like that's a, it's a, just a different, it's a different playbook. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's funny what you say about Concord, because I think that's another part of brand building is figuring out if you can attach yourself to like culture and cultural moments that matter, you know? Um, and that's one of the things we've seen success in is, when we find these stories um, like Concord or like IBM, we have an uh, episode of Team History that's entitled When IBM Nearly Missed the Internet, you know, thinking about how we can tell those stories that resonate with our audience and make sense in culture. It's great for building our, our brand awareness. And I will say when you're talking about Jira stories, one that was very culturally relevant. It happened a few years ago, but a story came out that Jessica Alba uses Jira sometimes. 
Oh, that's and awesome. we were able to we were able to write that story for quite a long time. I and mean, we didn't even plan for it or anything like that. But it is true that, you know, uh, culture matters and people are paying attention to certain stories out there in the news cycle or certain people. And if you can bring your brand a little bit closer to them, you know, you see a lot of benefit. I think that's why we see so many brands inviting like celebrities to come to their conferences, right? And and right. and bands to play at their conferences because there's a reason why there's like a lot of excitement around a certain personality or a certain franchise. And it's okay to associate like Salesforce with the Foo Fighters or something who played, I think played during one of their, their conferences. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. Like I remember exactly where I was, who I was with, what we were talking about when I saw Bruno Mars at Dreamforce in 2015, I think. Like I literally, I remember the exact moment and it's like how it's, it's like an actual lifetime memory, right? Like that's the type of stuff. Like I don't remember, you know, the product keynote for Marketing Cloud from 2015, right? You know, like it's it's just that's that's the difference. And I think what is so cool about about making things, you know, remarkable as the name of the name of our show is that you actually tell people about it. And it promotes a question, which is like when you said Jesse Alba uses Jira, my first thought is like, what does she do with it? Right? Like it it opens that loop for the for the listener to be like, Oh, I wanna know what I wanna know. Like what what is that? Last question here. And by the way, our listeners definitely check out Team Mystery. It's it's really cool. It's a great show. And y'all do a wonderful job and it wins awards and it's really cool. And work check is also great. But work life as a brand, as your blog, what do you think about this sort of idea of having a branded I, I don't know what you call it, whether it's a publication or whether it's have giving your blog a brand name or like this sort of thing. It sort of was like popular for a little bit and then sort of like fell out of favor a little bit. And then people now, you know, you have work life, but you also have these other shows within it. So just curious to your thoughts on like, is there a right way to do that sort of branding of your, of your content portfolio? And then within that, like the sub brands. Yeah. Great question. And, you know, this is something we've seen like in the industry in the last year or so with some layoffs that we've seen, like we've seen publication or we've seen companies close publications like Slack just closed Future Forum, which was a really exciting brand journalism play, at least in my in my book. And so that is definitely some there's a risk, I would say, of brand journalism in general. Sometimes it can be seen as like this experimental thing that we're just going to spin up over in a corner and try to keep it alive as long as possible. But sometimes reality hits and, you know, you can't, the business can't sustain. So I I think the way we've done it with work life is it has become so core to Atlassian's content marketing and to our brand and integrated. And, And that was on purpose. So, you know, we, we spun it up kind of initially as its own experiment, but then we figured out ways to connect it to the greater marketing funnel. So, you know, as an example, the land experience is 
what we would call true brand journalism, which is it's about the topics that we care about. It's not as much about Atlassian and our products. You know, we may make a mention of a product, but it's not there. You know, those articles are not there to sell products. But the second layer of that is, you know, what you may consider your typical like product product marketing blog, where we, we are talking about features and benefits. We are, you know, putting in customer messaging, but by creating a platform that's big enough to land people, we can then start leading them through an experience that gets more targeted and further down the funnel. So I think we are protected in a lot of ways because we've made, we've integrated the idea of brand journalism with product marketing so well on the work-life platform. And it, the work-life brand, so to speak, has really, it, it exists on the publication, but we've also seen new opportunities for work-life um, in our event spaces, for example. So last year, we actually started um, a, an event called Work-Life that is supposed to be based on a lot of things we talk about on the Work-Life blog, but in a real-life format, right, where we get to bring guest speakers and we get to have Atlassian speak. And that conference is kind of a blend of, you know, top-of-funnel thought leadership and, you know, product launches. We launched one of our products there last year. And so I think the way we've been able to establish the brand Work-Life, but also make it make sense for the business is by tying it in and having it have tentacles like into the rest of the business. You know, the last thing I'll say on this is that from the work-life blog, we link to the Alassian community and the Alassian community is a place for our customers to uh, connect and talk about products, to ask questions, to learn from each other. And so kind of just by making that available and open, we're incentivizing like further action with the brand and further engagement with the brand in these spaces and places that are really core to how we go to market. I love it. I think it's very pioneering because I think that the idea of this overarching Atlassian work-life brand in which you have resources underneath it with state of teams 2020 to 2023, state of developer report, you have quizzes, you have work check podcast, you have team history as a podcast. Like it's just, it, it lives your portfolio of other brands lives within it. And I think it's, I think it's very, very cutting edge the way that you do it and the different types. And then you also have other resources like, you know, the Atlassian team playbook and you have these other things. So there's, it's sort of, like you said, it works in the community. And I think that all of that stuff is very is a very virtuous circle and like you said you layer in all of the all of the product stuff in there too which is super helpful so anywho kudos obviously <laughs> thank you yeah it's it's been very fun it's a labor of love but very worthwhile all right any final thoughts on content on marketing on Atlassian or on the White Lotus season 2 well, if we can get Tanya's character to use Jira on season three, or actually, no, if we can get Tanya's character to use Jira in any way, shape, or form, we'll be very happy. I love it. That's that'll be goals. We'll we'll get uh, HBO on the uh, on the horn. See what we got yeah, going product on. Product placement. That's what I'm saying. Get some prod placement in there. We'll pay for uh, her salary. 
for, for the, for the, for the season. Valley, wonderful having you on the show. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time and, and your, and your opinions and your ideas. For our listeners, obviously you can go to lasting.com to learn more, check out all the stuff on work life and, and check out their shows. Any, anything else, anything to plug? Nope. I'm just happy. Thanks for having me. This was really a fun conversation. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>